Well, welcome to the orchard. We are so glad you are here. Well, some of you are awake. Well, that wasn't what I expected. I just, good morning, Pastor Deb. But that'll, that'll do. Um, I have some great news. We have Orchard, you know, we have two other campuses in the island place of Vanuatu that, that are Orchard um, churches. And we have a new campus that has started. You might have heard some talk about this. Um, in, in Kabul, Afghanistan, live streaming right now with us, we have an underground church. Yes. We have an underground church that meets at great peril to themselves. Uh, Abraham is someone we have been praying for, him and his family, and some of the friends around him have already been um, taken. And so we are, we are with you, we are praying for you, and we love you. Um, welcome. So we have Orchard Kabul joining us this morning. I am so excited about what we have today. We have been in the middle of this series on the book of John, and if you are just joining us, then we have had a year of traveling through the book of John, and that's okay if you missed it all. Um, if you have been with us through this, I know you guys. Man, you memorize everything I say, and you know all of it, and I'm so glad that we're here at this point because we're going to step into something that is amazing. So far in the book of John, we have seen Jesus as he goes through. We saw him start his ministry, traveling through Israel. We've seen him teach. We've seen him heal. And in today's message, we find Jesus in a garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, coming face to face with the reality of what he is on earth to do. This is the night This is the sermon we're going to talk about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Today's message comes from all four Gospels. And I just want to say, I first saw this woven together by a rabbi named Ray Vanderlaan. And I actually reached out to Ray Vanderlaan and asked him to come speak here today. And a couple more messages coming. And he couldn't make that happen, perhaps sometime in the future. But this morning, at certain sections, I'm going to be borrowing heavy from Rabbi Vanderlaan. I love the way that God revealed to him to weave some of this together. Now, just to review just to catch some of us up. I would really encourage you to go back and listen to our recording last fall from communion, where I talked about Passover and the four cups of communion, because it's a lot of the basis of what we're going to talk about today. It is a teaching that will help you see communion in a whole new light, that that communion isn't just a a Christian uh, custom without any roots. It's not just a cup. It's not just a piece of bread. There is more going on. It's not just tradition. You're going to see what it means spiritually and what Jesus is saying about himself. I'm going to touch a little bit on it today about communion because it's the basis for where we're going to go. Jesus, in today's sermon, we find him in Jerusalem for Passover, the high Jewish holiday. And in Passover, they have this meal. It's called the last, they have the last supper and it's it's a Passover meal. And in it, they have four cups of wine and four blessings. Each throughout the meal, they, they would drink a cup of wine. So by the end of the meal, you've had four glasses of wine. And some of you are already big fans of that kind of meal. And that's okay. I get that. But, but, but they would have four cups of wine, some food, some discussion, and four blessings. And this was done for generations upon generation. This tradition had been set. Now, eating at Passover with these symbolic four cups of wine, the first cup said this, I will bring you out. That was the first cup they would discuss and drink from. It is God's blessing saying, I will bring you out of Egypt. I will bring you out of slavery. This is the cup of consecration, of setting God's people apart. And then they would have some more discussion. They would have uh, another blessing. They would get to the, the second cup, and they would raise it, and this is the cup of freedom. As God said, I will set you free. I will set you free. 
and they would drink and have some more discussion. And then as the dinner went on, they would get to the third cup, and this was the cup of redemption. And, and for generations, they had done the same thing over and over, and the disciples, since they were infants, had been part of these Passover meals, and they knew exactly what to expect. But Jesus does the unexpected. He raises the third cup, and instead of giving the traditional Hebrew blessing, he says, this is my blood. And right there in the midst of communion, Jesus says, I am this cup. And this is the cup of redemption. Jesus says, this is mine. This is me. And anytime you drink from this, remember me. This is the cup of redemption. Jesus gives us redemption. He's, a, he's in the redemption business. He takes our pasts. He takes the things that, that haunt us. He takes our peace or our presence that, that, that the peace is robbed from. And he grants us redemption from what was and what is. He takes those parts of you that are so bound up in some things that have happened to you, and he gives you freedom. He can unwind the cords of addiction. The cup of redemption is what Jesus offers us. He breaks those chains, and he gives us, the, he says, I will bring you out, I will set you free, and I will redeem you. The first three cups of Passover. Now, there's a fourth cup, as you can see here. There's a fourth cup, and something interesting happened. You see, the fourth cup says, you will be mine. This is the cup of protection. This is the cup that, that, that says, um, I will, you will be my people. And I will be your God, and I will protect you. But Jesus did something very strange in the communion. Not only did he say, I am the third cup, my blood. Then he said, I'm not going to drink from this cup. Traditionally, they would always drink the fourth cup, the cup of protection, looking forward to, to God protecting them for another year. And Jesus, on the very night of the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I will not drink of the cup of protection until you are with me in heaven. Of all nights that Jesus needs protection, what does he set aside? He sets that aside. He will have no protection on this night. Jesus also in this meal, he raised up the bread and he, he blessed it and he broke it as had been done for generations and he he gives a blessing no one's ever heard before. He says, this is my body, broken for you. Jesus is declaring, I'm the fulfillment of the Passover that's been happening for thousands of years. It's me. You know, if you were in the room with the disciples, that would have been an amazing dinner. It would have been a meal that you had seen for 20 or 30 years. And that would have been a twist you had never imagined. That would have been a beautiful moment. And that was, if we're honest, the last beautiful moment that we're gonna have for a while as Jesus steps into the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus takes, he finishes the meal and then he, he, he starts walking to the Mount of Olives to this garden where they're staying. And if you were with us last winter, we talked through, the, uh, through how Jesus had discussions with them, how he prayed for his disciples, how he prayed for us. He had a, pr a prayer for all the people who would follow him. And they get to the garden and you can imagine this night, it's, it's a full moon. It's always a full moon on Passover. So they're walking by the light of the moon and they arrive at this garden in the midst of Passover, this specific night has a very special meaning. In fact, this, this night has a special name instituted by God. The night is called Le'il Shemarin. Everybody say Le'il Shemarin. Hebrew scholars in this place, Le'il Shemarin, which translates to the night of watching. And in Exodus 12, 42, it says this, it was a night of watching for the Lord to bring them out of Egypt. And so on this night, all of Israel is to keep the vigil to the Lord for generations to come. So there, on Leil Shimarin, in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
They are to stay awake to see what the Lord has for them. Now all the gospels come together and give a unique insight into this time. And in Matthew 26, we see this. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. So he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, John and James, with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now that's a pretty big turn of emotion right there. Jesus arrives at the garden. He'd just been singing hymns. He had been praying. And he says he becomes immediately sorrowful and troubled. And the, in, the interesting thing is the Hebrew words open this up and let us know a little bit more about what he's experiencing. One word that it means to be thrown into sorrow. A sudden onset of sorrow hit him. It, it splashed into him. A shocking realization. Something hit Jesus at that moment. A sudden sorrow struck him. The second word is far darker. It's, it's heavier on the heart. It means to be full of anguish. Internal agony. Anguish is not being sad. Anguish is a level of distress that affects a person's whole being. Anguish impacts your biology, impacts your hormone and endocrine system, your mental state, your psychological balance. Anguish is a deep-seated emotion that grabs a hold of you put these words together and Jesus would have had a sudden shocking realization followed by a shaking and a shuddering and a gasping in anguish. That's what, that's what it reveals to us there in the Greek that that's what he was facing. I can only think of one picture that would begin in our terms to describe this. This is that, that late night phone call that something has happened to a loved one. Or this is that policeman or military police that comes to your door to bring tragic news. That shocking moment, that shocking realization, the sheer terror of that washing over you, replaced by the anguish that wells up. This is how we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is how we find him. In Matthew 26, we continue. He said to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. My soul, the deepest part of me, is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now this is a, a different word for sorrow than even used before. This is the darkness that settles in and, sorrow and follows on the heels of that crushing realization. And some of you have experienced great tragedy. You've had moments where you've said, I'm so broken I could just die. I could just die. Jesus is feeling this. He has complete understanding of what he's facing. And it was multiplied because of what he was looking for, what, what he was looking down at. Something was revealed to Jesus. Something became clearer to Jesus in the garden that caused a sudden realization of shocking anguish and sorrow. That his own life was slipping away in the wake of it. He turned to his three closest friends and asked them, stay here with me and keep watch. And I want you to put yourself in the story. We can't just read words on a page. Put yourself in the emotion. If that's what he's feeling, how is he talking? Stay here with me. Keep watch with me. Le'il Shimmerin, the night of watching, watch with me. Be awake, my friends. Not just because of tradition, because I want to know you're in this with me. The next verse, it says he went a little further beyond them where he collapsed on his face and prayed. His knees buckle. 
he falls to his face and he begins to pray. Do you see the emotion that he's facing? What does he pray? He prays this, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not my will, but yours. Father, take this cup from me. He then goes back to talk to his, his disciples, his friends, or be comforted by their presence, and he finds them already asleep. And, and so he says, I'm about to die. Will you stay up and keep watch? And the, the, he finds them unconscious. Can you imagine the loneliness there in that moment? It's, it's, this is the most vulnerable moment we find Jesus. Jesus is fully God. He's fully human. And here we see him in, his, in that part of humanity wrestling with real emotions that we deal with. He goes back to his disciples, the, compa- the companions he's been with for three years, the ones he's closest to, the ones he's asked, to, he's asked them to stay awake with him. And there they are, at his lowest moment, asleep. And the loneliness that our Savior must have felt in that moment, along with all the anguish and sorrow already washing over him. He tells them, hey, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. The Spirit is willing the flesh is weak. I wonder how much of that last part was also for him. In my divinity, my spirit is absolutely willing. My flesh, looking at what is ahead, is weak. My spirit, fully God, is, is going to walk through this. My flesh is in anguish and sorrow. He walks away for a second time and he prays this. My father, If it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He came back to his disciples. He finds them sleeping again. And this time he walks away for the third time and he prays the same thing earnestly. So he's prayed three times. My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. My father, it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. Your will be done. And the third one is an earnest repeat of this. Luke's account adds something interesting to this. Remember, Luke is a, is a doctor. And so Luke gives us some insight on the anguish Jesus is facing. In Luke twenty two forty four. he says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling on the ground. And there's a scientific name for this. Hematidrosis. Hematidrosis is a condition which the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. It says severe mental agony activates the nervous system for that fight or flight reflex to such a degree that there is hemorrhaging in those little capillaries and there's bloodshed. We've all been broken. We've all had moments where we have screamed into the carpet. Why? Collapsed to our knees with brokenness. We've had these moments. We've had moments where we have, in our sorrow, come undone. And we find Jesus in this moment. Something here is causing his body, his heart, his soul, his mind to feel this great weight of anguish. Jesus, here in the Garden of Gethsemane, is under the weight of something. It's so strange to me. And we just read through this. And he's Jesus, so we allow him to say things that don't always make sense. But did you ever stop and wonder why at his most vulnerable emotional state, he says, take this cup from me? Have you ever prayed that at your lowest? (laughs) 
what is it about the cup? We turn to Mark 14 for a more personal look. Jesus, cry, Jesus cries out, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Abba is the, the loving term of a child that says, Daddy, it's, it means Daddy. Daddy, everything's possible. Take this cup from me. Daddy, you can do anything. Daddy, please take this cup from me. And in the emotion that he was in, you can imagine how that would sound. We see in these Gospels, Jesus praying these prayers about, about a cup. Some of us have read over this our whole lives. And we've read, may this cup pass from me. We've, we've watched the Passion movie. We've heard it in movies. But did you ever stop and wonder, why does he talk about a cup? It's very strange. At the lowest, most broken, most emotionally raw moment of his life, he gets all symbolic. Like, Lord, take us this cup from me. Like, like, what's going on? Why are you praying about a cup at your most emotionally vulnerable moment? Why are you asking God to save you from a, from a cup? Did, did you notice he didn't say anything about a cross? Take this cross from me? He knew what was ahead, but he didn't say take this cross from me. He said, take this cup from me. Why? Why would he pray instead? Why don't we read, Daddy, I'm about to be arrested, humiliated publicly, tortured for hours with a slow death on a cross and killed. Daddy, take the cross from me. Why doesn't he pray that prayer? Why didn't he pray the obvious prayer of torture that God would take it from him? I'll tell you why I believe. Because I believe it wasn't the cross that weighed on him the most. I believe there was something far greater looming in the mind and over the life of Jesus that is crushing him to this extent. There's a reason he didn't pray, God, take the cross from me. Whatever this cup is, it looms larger than anything else he's about to face. We've already discussed the four cups. God promises the blessing, I will bring you out. I will set you free. I will redeem you. I will protect you and you will be mine. Those are the four cups of Passover. So what is it about this cup that Jesus keeps asking about? And the reality is, the reason he's praying this, because at Passover, there's a fifth cup. There's a fifth cup. Now this cup has an interesting history. If we go back in the Old Testament, you find mention of this cup over and over. This cup is known as the cup of wrath. This cup holds the wrath of God's wine and God's judgment. There's a few, let me just read a few uh, verses that mention this. Psalm 75, in the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out over the earth. Drink it down to the dregs. Ezekiel calls this the cup of ruin and desolation. Isaiah calls it the cup of trembling. Prophets of God speaking of this cup in trembling and ruin and desolation. The cup of God's wrath. And this is the moment, some of you remembered, why you never want to come to church. <laughs> you show up and it's all oh, great. I got the sermon on the cup of God's wrath. Like, give me the tithe sermon. Give me anything. Get me out of here. Like, he invited me on the cup of wrath Sunday. Nice. 
Stick with me. Because something, God's, God's doing something with this. This fifth cup is in the Bible over and over. And the Hebrew sages and the Hebrew rabbis, there was much debate about what to do with this fifth cup. Like, first of all, what do, what do we do with it? How does it fit into the Passover? Like, where do you put it in? Uh, just kind of a halftime cup of wrath. Maybe a, like an aperitif. Digestive, I guess, aperitif. Like, like, where do you put the cup of wrath? Like, and you can imagine, like, a, I'm, not, I'm not drinking the cup of wrath. You drink cup of wrath? Uncle Eleazar, he'll drink anything. He'll get in the cup of wrath. Like, like, where do you put the cup of wrath? They didn't know what to do with the cup. They didn't know where to put it. And let me just say something about God's wrath. Humans never know what to do with it. This is a hard sermon to preach about, God's wrath. It's a hard sermon to listen to, the wrath of God. But let's, let me just say something. The Hebrew scholars and, and rabbis and sages who said, we don't know what to do with the cup of wrath, they got that right. Because humankind does not know what to do with God's wrath because we were never given authority over it. And anytime we as an individual or as a church take that cup of wrath and go, oh, I know what to do with it. I know who needs some of this. We're going to mess it up. It's going to get messy. And, and haven't you seen how church has been guilty of this in the past? Anytime a church takes up the cup of wrath and decides they know what to do with it. And researching this, there are churches that take up this cup of wrath and they go picket a dead soldier's funeral. That's not God's cup of wrath. Or they, we take the cup of wrath and they, they pick a certain race or a certain gender or a certain sin and they go, that needs the wrath. Those people, that's where the cup of wrath should go. That's not God's cup of wrath. There are people who take up the cup of wrath and go, my ex needs a large dose of the cup of wrath. Like, you know? My old business partner, they need some wrath. The one who hurt me in the past. I got some wrath for them. Can we be honest? The church has been known as, 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 a, as a place of judgment because we have taken this cup and gone out into the world and acted like we know who should get it and how it should be doled out. We go out and we, we, we pour it on or try to offer it to people who have different sins, but they're just different sins than ours. This sin over here, now this sin, this should get the cup of wrath. What we're really saying is, those other sins deserve more judgment than mine do. Funny how that happens. All the while, while I'm telling lies or cutting corners or, or living in lust or gossiping or, oh, but heaven forbid I'm not that person. They deserve the wrath. And shocker of shockers, people will walk around and go, did you hear? So-and-so is doing such and such. Ooh. We don't know what to do with the cup of wrath. We like to think we do. And so we have this reputation that we take certain activities and certain people and certain sins. And as a church or as a group of people, we think, here's some judgment for you. All the while excusing our own injustices in the world. On the other side, we like to say, oh, pastor, this is not what I wanted. You see, I believe in a God that doesn't have any wrath. I, I, just, I chose to left that one out. I, I chose to leave, believe in a God that doesn't judge. But let me just remind us of something. 
We love justice. We really do. Our hearts desire justice. We immediately notice when something is unjust. When we hear or we see someone who's guilty of kidnapping or murder or something, what do we want? We want justice. When we see someone who hurts children, what do we want? We want justice. When we, there's people dying of starvation in the world, we, we think, how could it? It's so un, unjust. On the whole, we are a people who love and desire justice, and there's a reason we were made in the image of a just God who knows justice. It's such a complex, complex issue. Desiring justice, knowing justice, and having this cup of wrath, and not knowing what to do with it. And the Hebrew sages, when they said, we don't know either, I believe that's the correct way for, for some of us to handle the cup of wrath, by admitting we don't know what to do with it. And we let the one who is perfectly just, perfectly holy, and perfectly loving take over that. But the rabbis had to do something with it. They had to do something with this cup, and so it was unclear in Passover where to put it. So they had this belief based on the Old Testament that the prophet Elijah would come and make all things clear to them. Elijah would come. He would come back. And so every Passover in many traditions, even to this day, in some traditions you will find that during the Passover they will leave a door open. They leave the door open in case Elijah wants to come in. And in fact, they have an open chair, Elijah's seat, with guess what's in front of it? A cup of wine. Now, some of the tradition has been lost, and it's just a place for Elijah to come and, 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 and be a part of it. But it started as this fifth cup that Elijah will come and tell us what to do with this. The cup of wrath, now known as Elijah's cup. Five cups of wine at Passover. Jesus drank the first three. He passed over the cup of protection and then he went to the garden of Gethsemane. And I believe there in that garden on that night as he was out praying that he came to a terrifying moment of clarity. You see, I believe that Jesus was there in that garden sweating blood and troubled, not because of the physical pain that was before him. I don't believe that. I believe there was something far more sinister, terrifying than any cross, any whip, any physical death. I believe his sudden sorrow and, and shuddering body and gasping and collapsing in prayer, his, feeling his soul was going to die and sweating blood, was the realization of what was actually before him. You see, Jesus didn't come to just get tortured and die. There in the garden, Jesus came face to face with the reality that he had the fifth cup ahead of him. The cup of wrath. Do you know what's in this cup? This is a terrible cup. It's the cup of hell itself. The cup of God's damnation. The cup of wrath that stands between a fallen people and a holy God. The cup of God's judgment that stands between broken lives and a perfect God. And there in the garden, the sudden sorrow, the crushing dread, the agony, Jesus in that moment, with all the emotion that you can read in there, he goes, I have to drink it. I have to drink it. Jesus came to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf, to be a ransom and rescue to us. He came to drink the judgment so we would not have to drink it ourselves. Standing between us and the Father was this ancient 
cup. And Jesus, there in the garden, facing the certainty of his mission to drink the cup of God's wrath so that you and I don't have to. He came to empty this cup of wrath upon himself. That realization washes over Jesus. And I don't believe in those excruciating moments. I don't believe, believe that Jesus just read or just recited or just whispered his prayers. Can you imagine the emotion? If, if the anguish is true, if, if those adjectives that he's actually living in are real, the emotions that he's looking at as he looks ahead to this cup and he begins to pray, can you imagine the emotion, the guttural cry? Daddy, no. Don't make me drink the cup, Daddy. Abba, no. Take that cup from me. Daddy, you can do all things. No. Let it pass. Let it pass. And then his, in his purpose, whispering, if it's not possible, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And right there is the entire reason that Jesus came. The fifth cup could not be taken away unless it was consumed. Someone had to drink the cup. Jesus didn't just come to be tortured and beaten and crucified. He came to drink the cup of wrath. so that you and I don't have to. He came to consume the cup of judgment that stood between God and his people. He came to drink the cup and therefore removing the barrier between humanity and holy. He came to drink this cup of calamity that separated us from God. Now do you see why Jesus is so emotional here? Is it making more sense it's not just the whips and the nails. It's this ancient cup of judgment that he keeps pleading for God to take away, this ancient cup that has stood between God and people. And someone, someone had to consume it. And I believe here in the garden, Jesus, wrestling in his humanity, yet in his love for the Father and his obedience and his devotion and his beloved, his love over us, his beloved, overcame the terror of what lied ahead. And he prays this, your will be done. Your will be done. And it is there that Jesus, our Lord, began to drink from the cup of wrath. And throughout the following day, as his head was pierced, his body, his back laid open as he bled, as he was pierced with nails and hung up the entire time he drank. He drank from the cup of wrath. And his, up there on the cross, he cried, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God turned his back away from the wrath that was being poured out over his son. And this is why, this is why on the cross, Jesus uttered three words that maybe from this moment on, you'll always know why he said it. 
It's been mysterious. Why did he say these? But as he hung up there on the final, the final breaths of his life, as his, as his spirit was leaving his body, the final drops of the cup of wrath being consumed, satisfying judgment, what does he yell? It is finished. It is finished. And he died. And upon that cross, Jesus drank the cup of wrath so that you and I don't have to. The cup of wrath that was reserved for those far from God, for those dead spiritually, the cup of wrath that was for each of us, that was for you, that was for me. It is finished. It's a terrible cup. A terrible cup. But in that moment, something absolutely beautiful happened. The cup that was between you and the Father, that it stood for so long, that cup at that moment became empty. And there was no wrath left in it. Jesus drank every drop. There is not one sip left over for you. He drank the cup of wrath so that you and I don't have to. For all who come to Jesus in faith, receiving him as, as Savior, the cup has nothing left in it. What does this mean for us now? It means we have a Savior who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He became everything sinful so that we don't have to be judged by our sins. In Jesus, and only through Jesus, God's wrath is satisfied. This means that for those of you who still continue to define yourself based on your past, you're trying to drink from a vintage that Jesus made obsolete. Those of you living in condemnation for what you have done or what has been done to you, you are looking for judgment where Jesus says there is none because I drank it all. Stop defining yourself by your past and what you've done or what you was done to you and start defining yourself based on the work of the Son of God in you and through you. The Bible declares we can enter his presence, the presence of God himself, with boldness. You don't enter into boldness unless there is no wrath. We enter in boldly as beloved daughters, as beloved sons. And if you are feeling conviction about your past, conviction is when the Holy Spirit convicts you to draw you closer to God. Condemnation is from the enemy to, draw you, to, to drive you further from God. So if, if, if we are living in anything, may it be conviction that draws us to Jesus, to God, and say, forgive me, forgive me. But, but condemnation is dead. There is no condemnation for those in Jesus, the Bible says. There is not a drop of this left for you in Jesus. Stop judging yourself by your past or present sin and start seeing yourself based on the work of Jesus. You see, you can live in freedom knowing that your Savior drank every drop of judgment so that you don't have to drink any of it. When God looks at us in Jesus, when God looks at us, 
he doesn't see our sin, he sees his son. In Jesus, God, when he looks at you, doesn't see your sin. He sees the work of his son. Jesus consumed the cup of wrath so that you don't have to. That you can come to him and find freedom. That through faith in Jesus, there is none left. The offer of Jesus is eternal life, but it's not because we're just good, it's because he is good. And it's not because we're not all that bad, it's because Jesus drank all the cup of evil of wrath on our behalf. Jesus drank that cup, and after that, he offers you eternal life. But not just eternal life someday, he offers you true life today. Forgiveness in your past, peace in your present, and hope for your future, not just eternal, but tomorrow. He calls you to come and receive him. He calls you to come. My son, I have brought you to this place at this time for this message to hear these words that you may come to faith in me. My daughter, I've brought you to this place, to this message so that you can hear these words and know you are set free and come to me for salvation. And this morning when we take communion, when, when, when we get this little cup and we take communion, we have the, the piece of bread under there that it's Christ's body broken for us and you drink this, you're drinking from the third cup of redemption. Today during communion, thank him that his body was broken. Thank him that his blood was shed. And as it touches your lips, thank God that you're drinking from the cup of redemption because he drank from the cup of wrath for you. Thank God that you drink from the cup of redemption. For others of you, you are here today either with us online, listening at home or in this room, and you have come to this place and you have not settled that Jesus is your Savior. And in this moment, I want to offer you a prayer that if you join me in this, it is simply declaring Jesus the Savior of your life it is drinking from his cup of redemption, receiving salvation. It is declaring, Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior who drank for me and did for me what I cannot do for myself. If you want to pray this with me, pray with your whole heart and repeat after me. Say, Jesus, I know you died. I know you rose again. Thank you for doing for me what I could never do for myself. I receive you as Savior. I give you my heart. And then take a deep breath. Holy Spirit, fill me. As we go into worship, may your communion be a moment of gratitude for a Savior who buckled in tears in a garden. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And then may we stand to our feet and sing to his glory.